morning. Good morning. Welcome to uh, Sierra Bible Church. If I haven't met you, my name is Jesse. I'm part of the pastoral team here. I get to teach the Word, and we're going to be in the book of James. We started uh, our series in James Faith Works last week. So if you don't have a Bible this morning and you want to follow along uh, and be in the book of James with us, just keep your hand up, and uh, one of the ushers will gladly give you um, a Bible if you want to take it and own it. If you're someone who's seeking Christianity and wondering what it's all about, and you don't have a Bible and you want one, you, you can please take ours. So um, a couple things before we, we dive in. Number one, uh, just to let you parents know, uh, we're trying to do a really good job communicating this. We do have Children's Church now available at the 8.30 service, and so if you want to participate earlier on Sundays, please uh, do so for all of your kids ages 3 um, to 8th uh, grade. Uh, is what we cover next door. Uh, so you're, you're welcome to join us at the 8.30 for that. We just did that uh, last week, and it's been great. Had 15 kids last week for the, the first time, uh, and we anticipate there'll be some more in, in the coming weeks and months ahead. And then tonight, we're, doing, um, we're launching a Prothumia block. And, and what Prothumia is, is it's our, our attempt to go deeper into the Word of God, deeper into a particular um, uh, topics within Christianity. We did one on apologetics and, and one on um, uh, relationships, intimacy, that kind of thing. And we have one coming up tonight, a whole new block starting tonight at 5.30 p.m. here at Seer Bible Church. And Prothumia, the word, uh, is, the, is the same word that's used when the Bereans studied the Bible, that they, they gave their hearts and their minds to the study of God's Scripture. And the guy who's really leading that and heading it up is Brad Beers. He's one of our elders. He's a tremendous teacher. Uh, graduate of Talbot, and uh, I want to introduce him to you, and he's going to share a little bit um, about uh, uh, Prothumia. So this is Brad Beers. Welcome, Brad Beers. Well, thank you for that somewhat uh, non-realistic applause, but (laughs) what are we going to study? I'm so glad you asked. What we're going to be studying for the next six weeks is the spiritual disciplines. Now, before you break out in hives at the word discipline... It's conjuring up all of these images of you in the principal's office where the paddle was hanging up on the wall, the one with the holes in it. That's the type of elementary school I went to, at least. Before you start thinking that when you think discipline, I want you to immediately take hold of that word and apply it instead to when you've heard about it talked about in like the martial arts where you studied a specific discipline. And what happens as a result of studying that specific discipline is a restrained and gentle power that's available to that individual. Let me ask you this question. If you've been following Jesus for a while, and you're wondering, what does it look like then for me to kind of take my relationship with God to the next level? James is going to be teaching you a, a bunch of stuff as Jesse continues to exposit that book for our church. But some of the practices that have been used by the church for hundreds and hundreds of years, we want to spend the next six weeks teaching you about them and how to maybe incorporate those into your relationship with God as well to kind of take it to that next level so that you can have that restrained and gentle power of the Spirit readily available for your life. So I hope you'll join us next six weeks, 5.30 on Sunday nights. We'll see you there. Thanks, man. This morning, if you would honor the word of the Lord, if you're able to stand with me as we read from James chapter 1. First four verses. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us through your word? May we, in the room, Lord, honor you by not treating Sunday as a common day, but as a day of importance. We celebrate every week this particular day in which our God died for us and then rose from the grave to defeat death, pain, and suffering for eternity. And in such, in treating it as important as it is, would you do a work in us, Lord, to perfect us, to be molded and shaped into your image. And it's in that we trust, in Jesus' name. And the church said, You may be seated. This morning, we will be talking about trials and tribulations. But before I do, I want to spend some time to just have, if you will, a last word um, from last week on service. James, if you remember, starts the book in a very particular way, considering who this man is. James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. This is a man who grew up with Jesus, lived with Jesus, maybe in many ways was compared to Jesus. Ouch. Imagine what mom and dad would have said to James and what maybe they said to Jesus, and maybe you can understand the struggle in which James lived with. And nonetheless, James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, but he later, after not first not believing and then becoming a believer of Jesus Christ, he then became a pillar in God's church, a leader within God's church handling a lot of heavy issues in the early church. And yet we see that James does not open this passage letting us know that he is a pillar of God's church or that he is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. No, he opens the passage stating that he is a servant. He finds it to be a higher honor to be in service of Jesus Christ than it is to actually be the half-brother or a leader within God's church. Uh, I didn't mention this last week, but I wanted to this week in part to carry over into the rest of the book of James. Remember, James is teaching us not only does faith work, but that a true believing faith will grow in Jesus Christ. This is a book of growth. This is a book that will help us grow. Oftentimes, in order to grow, you will need to find yourself in a place of service. I lead a community group every week on Thursday nights, and I ask many in our community group, how is it that God has helped you grow? One of those answers from several in the group was to be serving, to be doing something for God, not for just self, but to put themselves in a position where they were serving other people. I came across an article this last week from the Westminster Confession of Faith written in 1645. I appreciate the Westminster Confession. I actually appreciate a lot of the writings that have come somewhere between the 15 and 1700s because they exemplify for us a time when the church was reawakened and rebirthed, if you will. For a very long time, the church was oppressed uh, by pastors or priests, if you will, who did not teach the doctrines of grace, but taught something in the reverse. They taught, in fact, that in order to be saved, one must actually work to be saved, that they had to do something to be saved. And then in the Reformation, there's this birth of grace and a new reality of our Christian faith in which we are born to, 
The Westminster Confession in Article 21 through 26 reads like this. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, that he is good and he does good to all. I want to say amen to that. He does good and he is good. And because of this, the confession then writes, and that he therefore should be feared, loved, praised, prayed to, trusted in, and served with all of the heart, all of the soul, and all of the might. It goes on to say that all saints who are united to Jesus Christ as their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, and his glory, and be united to one another in love, they participate. This is word of service. In each other's gifts and graces, and it goes on to then say, strong word, are obligated to perform those public and private duties which lead to the mutual good, both inwardly and outwardly. It is the duty of professing saints to maintain a holy fellowship and communion and the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as to help them edify one another. Again, as we enter into the book, it's just this reality that if we're going to grow as Christians, that you and I should be in service. We should be serving one another. Therefore, Go to the info booth afterwards and sign up for something. <laughs> Hopefully nursery. Right, Christy? Whoop, whoop. That's what she said. As we segue into the rest of the book, as we understand that, that growth will be premised upon us serving and serving God and serving one another, both publicly and privately, as the confession states, we should also then realize that James has written this for our particular joy. Take note of verse 1 where he says, Greetings. Now, if to us we read it as greetings, an open introductory kind of normal thing you would write within a letter, but the language there actually means to rejoice or to be glad. What he is stating in as such is that you uh, should be very much in, enlightened to joy, excited about who God is. A smile should come upon your face by what he is going to write in this particular letter. By the way, I also stated last week that within service and growth, your joy will always be inextricably attached to those two things. If you desire to have more joy in your life, you should stop just serving yourself and begin to serve other people. This is what James is stating. Greetings to you. Joy be to you. Then James segues into one of the, the primary ways in which a Christian is going to grow. This is just such tremendous news. It preaches incredibly well, and people love to hear this. You will go through trials and tribulations. James is teaching us that if we're going to grow, we're going to come across some kind of hardship. My first point this morning is to teach you the reality of trials, the reality of various trials. First note in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When? Everyone say when. It doesn't say if. It doesn't say if, it says when. It is the biblical understanding. It is, it, the Bible actually is written from a standpoint where it just assumes that you know that you're going to go through something hard or difficult at some point in your life. My guess is this morning, some of you are in a particular trial right now. There is something that weighs heavy on your heart. It may bring about depression. It may bring about anxiety. 
For some of you, you you know what I'm talking about when you've experienced trials because you experienced it. You had something in your past. Or or if that isn't you, take heart, a trial is coming. Winter is nigh, my friends. There is a reality of trials that Scripture shares. Job's friend, Eliphaz to Job, shares this to Job in his trial and tribulation. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks are sure to fly upward. Job himself confesses in chapter 14 of the same book, man is born of woman, his days are few, and his days are full of trouble, he says. The New Testament is clear. It it teaches this reality, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. Have you ever encountered something difficult, whatever that difficult thing is, and said to God, why God? Why me? How come now? I could go through this at any other moment, but not today. Surely today's not the day for this. King David's cry in Psalm 22, 11, be not far from me, Lord, Lord, for trouble is near. Isaiah declares that they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish, anguish, anguish will come upon you. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Just a joy-filled book. He writes, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Sounds like he didn't like his job. What has the man from all the toil and striving of heart in which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. The Bible is clear. Trials are a reality for all people. They are difficult. They are gloomy. They are heavy. In fact, the Bible teaches that one of the primary beautiful gifts that God has given us, one of the most beautiful things in life, is actually one of the things that brings some of the most trouble in life. For those of you who are married, you know what an incredible joy it can be. For those of you who are married and you understand the biblical proclamation of marriage, it's even more beautiful. When you understand that marriage is to be the ultimate proclamation of the gospel. There is no relationship more intimate, nor is there any relationship that requires as much grace and as much forgiveness as the institution of marriage. But Paul himself, writing of marriage, says this, if you marry, you have not sinned. It's a great way to start a a message. If you've married, you have not sinned. And if your betrothed marries and, and she marries, she's not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. Anybody married? Anybody experience what he's stating? Those of you who are married, your silence is interesting. (laughs) Probably sitting next to your spouse. Paul then says, I know nothing. I like Paul's language after this. He He says to those that he's writing to, I would spare you that trouble. And then he encourages those of us who would have the call to singleness to stay single. Jesus himself said, I have said these, these things to you that you may have peace because in the world you'll have tribulation, but you need to take heart because I have overcome the world. 
Jesus himself is the ultimate example of how suffering can produce beauty. One author writes that though he was sinless, he was deeply troubled and wept. He wept when he saw Mary and the friends of her brother Lazarus grieving over his death. He grieved because of Judas' betrayal. He was deeply grieved to the point of death at the prospect of taking the sin of the world upon himself. Paul testifies that he was afflicted in every way and to varying degrees and for varying reasons. That is the experience of everyone. We expect occasional trouble in our job and school, society, even in our family and in our church. We know that we cannot escape criticism, frustration, disappointment, physical pain, emotional pain, disease, injury, and eventually death. We are told throughout Scripture, even in Jesus' life, that we will encounter trouble. The language that then is used, that, Paul, that, that James uses here, is the kind of trial and tribulation you will enter into will be of which kind? All kinds. Various kinds. The language here actually means many colored or diverse, varied, many shapes, different shades to different degrees, even different seasons of trial and tribulation. There are really three kind of ways that you can struggle in this life, are there not? One would be the physical side. Pain, disease, addiction, prison, persecution, financial, temptation of the world. The other can be of a mental kind. Depression, anxiety, disappointment, fear, heartaches, distractions. Living a life filled with the kind of life that is an emotional roller coaster, a nervous breakdown or stress. And then there's a third kind that the world kind of ignores altogether. And that third kind would be the spiritual warfare kind. As I read earlier, Peter writes that you should not be surprised when you encounter fiery trials. And the language of fiery literally is spiritual. That there is a demonic oppression that is after the Christian in this world. You, my friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are called to be a light in a world that absolutely hates darkness. Therefore, in this world, it should not be shocking to you that it hates you, mocks you, and does not like you altogether at all. All of these can be frustrating, difficult, hard to swallow. Another way you could look at it is that there are, there are the kind of trials that come that God has allowed, and then there are the kind of troubles that come by cause and effect. Do you know what I mean by this? You know, this is, this is the, the, the having to take responsibility for your actions. You sin, and you then reap what you have sown. You did something stupid, therefore you get punished. One of the things I uh, have a new appreciation for as a parent with my children is the new understanding and definition of fairness. That's not fair. That's not fair. He's got a toy. That's not fair. She has the toy. It's not fair. But one thing I've never, ever seen my kids do is do that in the reverse. To actually see uh, themselves be blessed and then say, that's not fair. <laughs> you never see a kid do that. You know what's funny, though? You never see an adult do that either. If, if today, you can just don't put this to the test, but today, if you decide to drive to Glenshire at 75 miles per hour on Glenshire Drive, if, first of all, if you saw someone do that, 
especially if you live right where the Claibornes do. They may come out on the street, what are you doing? They're yelling, they're calling the cops, right? What is happening? They get a ticket, the first thing everyone's going to say is, that's right, you deserve it. Give them that ticket. Yeah? But what if you drove, drove 75 miles an hour, made it home, never got caught? Would you sit there and go, oh, man, that's just not fair. I need to go call the town police, and I need to let them know what I've done. I need to report myself and let them know, please give me a ticket because I care about fairness. No one's doing that today, are they? Because the reality is, is in our minds, when we ask and we look at the reality of trial and tribulation, we really are not the ones who should be defining, first of all, if we deserve a trial and tribulation, if it is fair or it is not fair, because the reality is any kind of judgment you deserve is completely fair. Nobody in Christianity gets injustice. Nobody. But God has a purpose within his trials and tribulations in which he gives us. Before I segue into that point, let's just understand something in America. Some researchers and doctors I read this week have said that Americans are the least equipped in all of the world to deal with and handle suffering and pain. By the year 2024, it is projected that pain relief on all forms, physical, mental, emotional, will be an $83 billion industry. I don't know if you know this, but that's a lot of money. Right now, it's a 60-plus billion dollar industry. We have a society that is built to make you depressed, to then charge you for some kind of solution that you then will no longer be depressed. To numb yourself through, through alcohol or pornography or Netflix binging or video games or any other slew of things, our world is designed to make you feel bad about yourself and then to try to fix it on your own. See, it's built within our Constitution, is it not? That every American should have the ability to pursue and run after life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But within that, we have lost our definition of what it truly means to be joy-filled and what it truly means to be happy. Here's something that you need to understand. If you're looking at your notes, this would be the second point on your notes. How you respond to trials reveals your Christianity. When trials come, they, they reveal to you, not to God, for he knows your standing before him, but it reveals your Christianity. It reveals your faith. One author says how a person handles trouble will reveal whether his faith is living or dead, genuine or imitation, saving or non-saving. James shows us that when faith is but an empty profession or mere sentiment, not based on firm, intelligent convictions of divine truth, the fire of trouble will burn it up. But where there is true faith, affliction naturally leads to deeper thought on, one true, on one's true condition than under any other circumstance and thereby frees the heart from deception and self-righteousness. The source of weakness leads to earnest wrestling with God and prayer and the experience of sustaining grace thus obtains, strengthens, and exhilarates hope. Jesus teaches this reality in the parable of the sower. His own words in the parable reads like this from Luke chapter 8. 
the one who the one who the gospel goes forth, the seeds of the gospel, those seeds that fall upon the rock, those are the ones who hear the word of God, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and receive it with joy. Note what he is stating. The message of salvation is proclaimed to a particular kind of person. And the natural response of that person is, God is for me, God is gracious, God is loving, therefore I want to follow him. He goes on and says, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and then in a time of testing, a time of trial, a time of tribulation, they fall away. He goes on and says, and those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of their own life, and their fruit does not mature. You see, Jesus is stating to us that that trials and tribulations actually reveal to you, not to God, but to you, whether you're truly a Christian or not. I've seen this as a pastor. I have seen people through trial and tribulation literally become born again. The, 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 the trouble, the, the addiction, the, the difficulty, the marital issue, all of it has led to a place of salvation. They see there is trouble, they see there is hardship, and they run to Jesus Christ. And then there's others that don't grow better, they get much, much more bitter. They get angry at God. They blame God. They get frustrated with Him. They don't want to go to church, they don't want to read their Bible. In fact, I cannot follow a God who would allow such things in someone's life. How have you responded to your trial and your tribulation? How well you respond to your trial and your tribulation when it comes? See, Jesus, this is point three within the message, has some reasons and some very natural results that come from trials and tribulations. There's a reason, friends, we go through these things. It's not aimless. Verse 2 again, notice what the, the language James uses, count it all joy. The word count is a financial term. He's asking you as a Christian to take into account and evaluate the trial and tribulation to see it as something that will produce profit and growth in you. Don't see it as a liability. Don't see it as something negative. See it as, as an investment. Something is happening in your life, you should count it and consider it joy. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, I hope you emotionally feel joy. Notice it doesn't say that. In fact, I don't think very many of us, when we encounter a particular trial and tribulation, our first response is, man, this is the best. Thank you, Lord. May I have another. That's not the natural gut instinct. Let us be honest. When you and I encounter hardship is not the natural response and reaction to run? To get out of it? To alienate the friendship? To get out of the marriage? To leave the church? To move out of the Tahoe area? If I could just get a fresh start, if I could get a new beginning, if I could just get away from that person, I'm not counting this joy. I'm counting it as a curse. Lord, get me out of here. Is that not your natural response? Right? We either have the tendency to to run or the tendency to fight back, to get angry, to justify the emotion, 
to be frustrated and then to be self-righteous in our declaration that in the trial and tribulation, well, God, it's actually you that is wrong. Or in the relationship, it's the other person's fault. We shift the blame. We move it out. But no, James is saying, consider this. Think about it. This is for your profit. Before we dive into that a little bit more, take note of the language that James uses. James has two, in the book, two major influences that he's pulling from as he writes this particular epistle. One influence is the wisdom literature from the book of Proverbs. The other one, as we'll see as time goes on, is he's also pulling from the Sermon on the Mount, what it looks like to be a Christian. Wisdom from the Old Testament and gospel language from Christ himself. James says, count it all joy. Why? That you would then be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is language that James is pulling from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, you therefore, you, yes, you, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody perfect in the room? If you are, you're going to stand up here. We're all going to worship you. There isn't anyone perfect in the room. We know this, but this, this is the expectation. This is, this is the goal that Jesus wants us to run to. And we know that in this life, we're never going to obtain it. Yet James and Jesus both know that, that God is on a process to mold you and shape you to be a perfect being, both, both mentally, physically, and spiritually in Christ Jesus. And to that, we should say amen. The first reason that Jesus brings a, a trial or tribulation in your life and allows it also comes from this passage as well, to test your faith, to test the the true strength of your faith. Another quote reads, a person who becomes resentful, bitter, and self-pitying when troubles come plainly exposes weak faith. On the other hand, a person who turns more and more to the Lord as trouble gets worse and asks his help in carrying the burden just as plainly demonstrates a faith That is strong. It is God's aim and goal in a particular trial and tribulation to help you grow in your faith, to strengthen your intimacy with Jesus Christ. Remember, I quoted Job earlier. Have you ever read the book of Job? I don't mean to say it with such disdain, but it is a tough book to read. I had a really wise idea one Years, several years back when I was in San Diego to lead a community group in the book of Job, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. It took a long time. You know, if you've read Job, what you'll read is, is basically Job is in a lot of pain and he's suffering. And then his friends show up and his friends are like, it's your fault, Job. You messed up, dude. You need to repent. Job's like, no, I'm good. And it's that for like 40 some chapters. Just it just keeps going and going, and you're reading it, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's kind of like the sermon. I just wish this would end. Just, just stop. This, oh my God. Where's the, where's the joy? When's it coming? 40-some chapters. You don't get any. You read it, you start thinking to yourself, I'm sure glad I'm not Job. It's frustrating and painful. And yet after the end of all of it, after Job's family has been ripped from him and his health has been taken from him and his friends have mocked him, even his own wife says, curse God and die. He obviously hates you. Think your marriage is tough? Deal with that. (laughs) Finally, near the end of the book of Job, Job comes to this place after he's suffered, 
after he has suffered so much more than we could ever think or imagine, and he says this to God. A man, remember now, a man that, that Satan said, yeah, this is your most self-righteous guy. This is, this is your best man. Let me touch him and he will turn from you. That's the kind of guy he was for 40-some chapters. At the end of it, these are Job's words. Chapter 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. You see, Job's language is the trial and the tribulation have strengthened his faith and his intimate relationship with God himself. That God at one time was distant and far, though he knew who he was. He thought he understood who God was. He thought he knew who God was. And now he's stating, now, now though, I have a clearer view of who you really are. So many people want a deep relationship with God himself, but they are unable to actually embrace the reality that to know a suffering Savior is to suffer. But what if your suffering and what if your tears and what if your frustrations are all meant by God to deepen an intimate walk with a God who died for you and loves you? C.S. Lewis says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is this not true for you and I? The first reality of why we experience pain and tribulation is to test our faith. The second one is to produce humility. That we come to a place where we have to call upon God and lean upon God. Have you ever met those well-intentioned Christians that, that when you're going through a particular kind of trial or tribulation, they, they use the Bible verse completely out of context and they'll look at you and say, good news though, man, God never gives you more than you can handle. Whenever I've heard a Christian say that in the back of my mind, I don't say it out loud because it's not appropriate. I say, no, you're dumb. That's wrong. Because if you look at the context, it's speaking of temptation and sin. God will never, ever, ever, ever place an addiction or a temptation in front of you that you cannot conquer. But he will indeed put things in your life that you cannot defeat. Tell somebody who's lost a loved one. You can handle it. Tell the person who, who has finally got the, the revelation from the doctor, it's terminal. Tell someone who's lost their child, it's all going to be okay. God has allowed this because, you know, he can't give you and won't give you anything you can't handle. My friends, Jesus indeed will put things in your life that you cannot handle so that you have to call upon a God that is the only one who can deal with it. Which leads me to my third point of why is to teach you. Trials and tribulations are to teach you not to lean on the material world. Your money cannot save you. Your children cannot save you. Your house won't save you. Your job won't save you. Your savings account will not save you. Your retirement will not save you. I cannot save you. Your church cannot save you. No one can heal you from your cancer in this room. No one can remove the depression from you magically. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who can do that. 
One author says that he allows these trials and tribulations in our life to wean us from the dependence on worldly things. The more we accumulate material possessions and worldly knowledge, experience, recognition, the more we are tempted to rely on them instead of the Lord. These things can include education, work, success, important people we know, honors we may have been given, and many other types of worldly benefits that are often not wrong in themselves, but can easily become the focus of our concern and the basis of our trust. See, the Bible wants to take your eyes off of, Jesus wants to take your eyes off of the material world and all that will burn and decay and, and thrust you to a place, which this is point four, to look to the eternal world and your heavenly hope. Romans chapter 8. Paul, the one who suffered more as a missionary than anyone you could think or imagine, left for dead, many shipwrecks, beaten, abused, mocked. His life was threatened. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing, he says, even the longing of creation itself waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Creation is going through its own kind of suffering. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to the corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we've been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what, is already, for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance... We wait eagerly for it. You understand the language of Romans? It's, it's really actually very beautiful. He says, you have been adopted. Could you imagine what it is like for a child who understands that his mother and father at some point in his life said, for whatever reason, I cannot parent you, I will not parent you, or I am incapable of parenting you, and to be in that position of waiting to be in a home, to be adopted, to be in a relationship with a mom and a dad, to have a healthy place of living. This is the language of the Bible. You once, you once were an orphan. You were without a parent. You were homeless. You had no clothing, no spiritual clothing. And then Jesus in his love and his sovereignty comes and he adopts you as a child. And then Ephesians chapter 1, the language of the proof of the adoption is that he hands you the seal. The, the adoption papers are now in your hands. He's come, he has given you the adoption paper and it's sealed and it's signed. Christ, God, the Father is our dad. He seals it with his spirit, it says in Ephesians 1. And that inside your spirit, it echoes it. It, 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 you know that you're a true child. But then he says, but, but as it says in Romans, you're not home yet, though. You're not an orphan, but you're not home. I'm preparing a home for you. But it's not yet. That's our hope. You get our mind off of the worldly possessions, off of the world, and you look to the hope that God has. We, he's preparing a new home for us. There's a new place. No pain, no suffering, but it's not yet. It's the already not yet tension that exists in Scripture. You're a child of God, but, but, but I haven't brought you home yet. 
You might ask the question, why? Well, why am I home yet? My, my little girl, she said to my wife the, the other day in the car, four years old, when's Jesus coming on a cloud? I just want to see him. She's anticipating. She, she, she's hoping. And the reason is this. This is my next point. Is so that now, after you have suffered and you've been strengthened in your suffering, that you would be able to help strengthen others. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God, the Father, who, listen carefully now, comforts us in our affliction. Jesus himself enters himself into your suffering that you may be able then to comfort those who are in affliction, in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, we also through Christ share abundantly in his comfort too. When was the last time in your suffering you saw it as an opportunity to comfort somebody else in their suffering? See, when Jesus has handed us the adoption papers, he is also as a new child who's been born again by his spirit, he does something else. He hands you a whole other stack of adoption papers. And he tells you to go into a dark world and to pass those papers out and to let people know you're an orphan. You can be adopted into the family of God. And if you accept this document, Jesus will stamp it with his Holy Spirit. Would you like to be part of a new family? And many of you in this room, you know that the people in this room and the people of faith can be a much stronger family than even some of your biological family because there is a connection and an understanding of sin and forgiveness that the rest of the world just simply doesn't have. I think it was Spurgeon who said this reality of in a church where there is no sin preached, there is no gospel preached. And it scares me for the Christian world where so many pastors will preach what seems to be from the Bible, but they will not use the word sin. You can put it to the test. If you're visiting this morning from out of the area, it would be an encouragement to just listen. Do you hear the word sin, affliction, pain, trouble? Do you hear those things coming from the pulpit? Because they are reality. And if it isn't preached, there's no good news. There's no good news if there isn't bad news. It's all just magical and whimsical and feel good. It's all just Christianity is the best. I heard one pastor this week say in my, stu- in my study time that, 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 hey, when we do altar calls, which is something they do, we bring them into a counseling room to make sure they know that now that they're a Christian, they're going to suffer. <laughs> How many of you heard that at your first altar call? Hey, man, you'll go through some stuff, but it won't be like it was. Your affliction will be for your good and for your benefit, and you'll know more about God, and you'll know more about the forgiveness of your sins. Let me just ask the question again this morning. How many of you are suffering? I know some of you are. And there's two things I think the church needs more so than ever. Number one, I think the church, the church needs more honesty. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay. Honesty, transparency, raising kids is frustrating. Being married is hard. Some some of you know there are are women in this church that, that come every week. They love Jesus. Their husbands never come. It's not easy. It's okay to admit it. Isn't it okay to admit that You don't always like coming to church. 
Oh, it hurts me to say it because I want to convince you to come every week, right? It's okay to not be okay, but here's the reality. It's okay, not, it, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. You've got to grow at some point, and you've got to grow through it, which means you can't run from it. You've got to face it. You can't run from your church. You can't run from your family. You can't run from your wife. You can't run from your kids. You can't. You can't. You stick it through, and you face it, and you allow God to grow you through it as long as it takes, because that's the next deal is you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How long? How long? It says in here, the passage it reads in such a way you may not see it. The, The patience will have its full effect within suffering. For some of you, patience is suffering. And you go, again, how long? The Bible teaches to be long suffering it's not short suffering it's long it's long suffering i shared with someone this week i said hey listen man my hope is to discipline and love my children for 18 years and hopefully when they move out they figured something out but i'm still in it for at least 18 years at that point at 18 they have they have the freedom to do as they decide to do with dad and mom Shut us out, cut us out. But as long as we're in their life, guess what? We're still going to be even, even more so after 18 pouring into their lives to then teach them and help them and guide them through college years and then parenting and then whatever else is after. How long do you parent for? Those of you who have kids in college, you know it never ends. It's just a long road. but it's worth it. And it is a declaration of the gospel. Let's be honest. Isn't God patient with you? Are you not a rebellious, just downright difficult child of God? Are you not? We need more honesty. Number two, we need more empathy. You need to step into someone's shoes and really do the hard work of understanding their pain. People hurt. When they hurt, they get defensive and they say things that aren't true. But if we were empathetic, how much more ability would we have to build bridges and, and to, to heal through our pain and suffering? I had a lady come up to me after the service. She didn't share all the details, but she essentially said that she had lost somebody in her life. And she went into, because of losing that person in her life, she went into a downward spiral of depression. And the people who should have loved her and been the most empathetic got frustrated with her because she wasn't walking according to the way that they thought that she should. And they alienated her. The natural response for most of us when something awful happens is to run and to struggle in our relationship with God, to get angry at God. And you know what? It's okay. Love that person. Walk with that person. Just understand where they're at. Emotionally, 
it can be so difficult to go through some of life's hardest things. Can't it be? Who are we to think that we would do any better? I don't think that we all would. But as I close, this reality is once you've gone through something, it's now your job back to service. James is a servant. It's now your job to comfort somebody else. It's now your job to get your eyes off of yourself. Stop thinking about you. Start serving somebody else. Does that make sense? I want to close with a verse as the worship team comes up from David. David said, before I was afflicted, before I went through my hardship and my pain and my sin, I went astray. But now, O Lord, I keep your word. Verse 71 of the same passage, he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. And as we close in prayer, as I shared last week, I... I do believe that God's doing something in us as a church as a whole to strengthen us and mature us and grow us so that we can bring in a whole other group of people, whatever that number is. I don't know what it is. Might be five, might be 10, could be 200 of people who were broken and new in their faith. And we then would have the knowledge and the maturity to help them become true disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Would you pray that God would not only do a work in you to mature you so that you can know Jesus, but at the same time, would you have an ability to take your eyes off of yourself and ask God to use you? Yeah, you. Who am I talking to? You. You. If if you want to, is it sure me? Yeah, you. And that God would use you to bring someone to SBC or to Jesus or to a good, healthy church, whatever it is, but into a relationship with Jesus Christ and then invest in them and help them grow to know who Jesus is. What do I share with them? What do I say? Just say Jesus over and over again. Seriously. If that's all you know is, is Jesus. Yeah, but it's just it's Jesus. Well, what about this cultural issue? Just, just Jesus, man. Like He's God. He forgives you. He's the only one that chased after you. No one else is chasing after you. All the other gods in the world are telling you to come to them. Every other god in this world is telling you, come come on, you need to get to me. Come on, work your way to me. We're the only ones who worship the God who came to us. He's chasing you. Stop running. Worship him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for the ability to grow in faith and to grow through our trials. Lord, next week as we dive into the rest of James, you will teach us that we are going to need wisdom and ask for wisdom to do these things. And so in advance, we ask for your wisdom. Wisdom that you'll define later on, the kind that is from above, not earthly, but heavenly. Lord, we are hopeless without you, and so we look to you, and we measure our struggle and our tribulation and our hardship And we make a conscious decision right now before you to count it as joy. Have your way in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.